friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 16, reading the story of the Philippi church plant. We saw last week that Paul and his missionary team, they were traveling, and they finally land in Philippi, and we pick them up in Acts chapter 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. The owners are furious. They drag Paul and Silas before the magistrates. And we pick them up in verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do what you promised to do. And that is to take these written words and by the power of this Holy Spirit, plant them in our hearts, grow them up in rich soil to bear good fruit for your kingdom. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. You know, friends, this is actually a remarkable milestone. There's no fanfare in the text, and we don't really know our Mediterranean geography as we ought, but if you were watching closely, the gospel has just jumped from Asia to Europe for the very first time in our passage, the gospel now arrives at a brand new continent, the continent of Europe. Not 20 years before this passage, it's been about two decades since the founder of an obscure Jewish sect hung dead on a Roman cross and the few people that followed him had already run away from him and they were in hiding. And he was not the only man to die by crucifixion. He was one of maybe tens of thousands who had died in the Roman Empire by crucifixion. And if you had been there that day, 20 years before this day in our text, you would have probably said circa AD 33. Well, that was that. We had a good three-year run We heard some beautiful things about the kingdom of heaven, but this is done for until eyewitnesses begin to say the impossible. This one man, out of all of these crucifixions, this one man has actually been dead for three days. He's gotten up. He's alive again. He appeared to thousands of people. We have seen him and can testify to the fact that we watch him ascend to heaven, sit at the right hand of the Father, and provides a way of salvation that humanity can be reconciled to the creator, God of the universe. 
When these eyewitnesses go out from here and they start saying this, this message explodes in the Roman Empire. It turns the city of Jerusalem upside down. It spreads to the next region, which is Samaria. The hated Samaritans begin sitting with Jews and worshiping Jesus together, the unthinkable. You've got an Ethiopian treasurer who comes and hears the good news of Jesus and he brings it back to Africa. You have a church that's planted in Syria. You've got Romans who come to faith, a centurion in, uh, in Caesarea and a Roman official in Cyprus. The gospel spreads like wildfire by people who can testify to as eyewitnesses and put their lives on the line for the truth that the Jesus who was dead is now risen and alive and that gospel changes everything. Wherever it goes, it turns communities upside down. It'll change a human heart. It'll change a household. It'll change a city. We know that to be true, but we actually get to watch it in one of my favorite church plants in the New Testament, Philippi, which is later going to get one of my favorite letters in the New Testament, Philippians, written to this body of believers. We get to watch this threefold change in hearts, in households, and in cities that the gospel, wherever it goes, it changes everything by the power of God. So let's start by looking at the change in a human heart. I don't know about you, but it feels like the moment you feel like you get a rhythm with ministry or maybe evangelism or sharing the gospel, the the moment you get kind of your way of doing things, everything changes. The culture changes, people shift. What was working five days ago is not working today. And you've got to change your kind of strategy and tactics. Well, that's exactly what happens to Paul and his team because anywhere he went in the Middle East, he was able to do the same thing in every single city. We watch this pattern on repeat. He would go to the community. He'd find the local synagogue where Jews were worshiping. He would enter the synagogue on the Sabbath, and as a guest, he would be invited to preach. He would get up. He would preach Jesus from the Old Testament, and that's how he began every single evangelistic outreach until this first time in Europe, he shows up at a city that doesn't have a synagogue. You have to have 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. And if you don't have 10 Jewish men, you can't start a synagogue. I literally was preaching this at the nine o'clock service and I met a first time guest who is an Orthodox Jew. And he came up to me afterwards and said, that wasn't only true in Paul's day, that's true today. Like in his local synagogue, you cannot open the Torah until 10 Jewish men are present. And if you have nine Jewish men, the rabbi will call my friend and say, get out of bed, come to synagogue today. We can't open the Torah without you. Can you imagine? That is still in practice today. So Philippi doesn't have that group and so they don't have a synagogue. So verse 13 says, the team goes out of the city to the river to find a place of prayer, which would have been this Jewish community of Jews and God-fearers who are there without a synagogue to worship God in this place. You've got Paul, you've got Silas, we picked up Timothy. All of a sudden, Luke's account of the narrative switches to we, not they, and so Luke is there as well. You got all dudes, and they show up to this riverside, and it's a bunch of women, all women. 
There aren't 10 men for a synagogue. It is a group of women there to pray. And I wonder if their hearts sank a bit. They're used to the synagogue scene. They're used to preaching to a bunch of people. Now it's a small group of women. In fact, when they had the vision in Macedonia, it was a man standing there saying, come over and help us. And then when we come to help you, it's women that are gathered by the bank of a river. And actually, typically, women are the first to come to faith. And women are the ones who stay in faith. Whether it's the evangelical church, the Catholic church, the Protestant church, it is all majority women, 55% women, 45% men. And on the flip side, those who resist the gospel, atheists and agnostics are two-third men and one-third women. Women tend to receive the gospel and hold the gospel faster than men. Well, among this group, we meet Lydia, who's a truly fascinating woman. She comes from Thyatira, which is an ancient empire in Turkey. It's a place known for purple dyes, uh, for clothing, for goods, luxury goods. They've been doing that since the time of Homer. They would actually do that until the 19th century, 3,000 years of developing these expensive garments. And she brings this business to Europe and begins selling this here in Europe. So she's an international businesswoman. And she's not a Jew, but she's sympathetic to Judaism. She worships God. She's heard about the God of Israel. And so she comes to to hear messages about God, not yet knowing about the Messiah. And do you notice how Scripture says her conversion takes place? Verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The messenger speaks, but it's the Lord who opens the heart. The messenger can say, the messenger can explain, the messenger can preach and plead and exhort and rebuke and pray and cry, but it will always and only be the Lord who reaches down and open a human heart to respond to the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Scripture tells us repeatedly that we are so steeped in sin from birth that we will resist God in every turn, in every way. In fact, we're not just resistant to God. We heard in our confession of sin that Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Without Jesus, we don't want anything to do with God and we will not respond to him. And maybe you've had the experience where it feels like you're speaking to a brick wall when you say there is a God who loves you and has delivered you through his son Jesus and the person across the table wants absolutely nothing to do with it. It is because of the doctrine of total depravity We cannot hear the good news unless the Lord will do something. For Lydia to respond to God, it doesn't mean that she's smarter than the other women. It doesn't mean she's a better listener than the other women. It doesn't mean she's more humble than the other women. It means that the Lord who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love reaches down, grabs her heart, opens it, And when she hears the good news that as a sinner she can repent of her sin and place it on Jesus and Jesus out of his love will place his righteousness on her so that when God sees her, he sees the perfection of his son Jesus, well then her heart is open to respond to that and she receives the gospel and it is a miracle. 
when she receives the good news of Jesus, it changes everything for Lydia because she becomes a beachhead of faith on the continent of Europe. It's like you're our only believer. We need you. You are the first believer in Europe. And so she urges the team, come and stay at my house. I want you, you, the team, to stay at my house. And then verse 40, she wants to host the entire church that meets at Philippi. Because during this time, anytime in the New Testament you read about a church, it's never in a dedicated space like we have here at this address. It is always and only in people's houses. You don't have church buildings for another 200 years. And so this woman is saying, I want to host the church. It will meet in my home, which means she is very well-to-do because she has a house that's big enough for the team and for her and for the entire church that's going to meet there. This wealthy, influential, international businesswoman becomes a force of nature for the Lord in a totally unreached area. And actually, this is only the beginning of European women because you're heading down this corridor in acts of zealous, energized, spirit-filled women who do radical things for Jesus. We meet Lydia right off the bat. We're about to meet Priscilla, who is a renowned Bible teacher. She's going to school Apollos in the scriptures. We're going to hear about Phoebe, who's a servant and a patron and a missionary, and Chloe, who's a leader in the church in Corinth. The Lord used women to start churches, host churches, launch ministries, support missions, evangelize the lost, teach the Bible, fight division, serve the church. He did that then. He will do that now. May the Lord raise up a generation of women who are so filled by his spirit, so zealous for his kingdom that they will continue to do the ministry we see founded in Acts 16 in our day, in our city today. Lord, give us such women as these. He does this in the human heart and it changes everything. It changes Lydia. And number two, it changes her household. The text almost says it's in passing because so much is happening in Philippi, but verse 15 says, and after she was baptized and her household as well, by God's design, he doesn't just want you, he wants your family. He wants whatever is happening in your heart to then overflow in concentric circles to the people that are closest to you. That's exactly what Peter said in Acts 2 when he preached at Pentecost. This gospel is for you and for your children. So Lydia is in this household, and in a Roman household, that didn't just mean your family, that meant your extended family. That also meant your servants and your slaves and your employees. This was a large household that operated both as a home and as a business. This is like Encanto. This is the matriarch of the home. And when Lydia responds to the gospel, it's like dominoes. The entire household together receives this good news and they enter the kingdom of heaven together. We're going to talk more next week when we meet the Philippian jailer and the exact same thing happens in his household. But the gospel comes and it changes a human heart and then it comes and it changes an entire household and then finally the gospel will also change the city in which we uh, reside just as Peter said. His promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. 
So after Lydia and her household, we now meet somebody who is truly far off in verse 16. This girl couldn't be more opposite than Lydia. Lydia's wealthy, successful businesswoman. Now we meet a girl who is possessed by a demon and she is enslaved to her handlers. That means she's twice oppressed. She's oppressed spiritually. She's oppressed economically. She is the lowest of the low. If Lydia is the highest of the high, right away we meet the lowest of the low. And she becomes like this window into the underbelly of Philippi. It existed in that city. It exists in every city then and now. But beneath this thin veneer of middle classdom in which we often dwell, there is a world of poverty, oppression, sorcery, abuse, and exploitation in that city and in our city. There are those who prey upon the weak and the vulnerable. And I hear stories from our school teachers that are members here, from our social workers who are members here, from those who lead in mercy ministries. Things I cannot believe happen in our city, in the Bible Belt, right under our noses that you would never know about and would never have to know about if you wanted to carry on with your business. That's happening here in Philippi. And our text says that her owners are making a ton of money off of her. So she has a spirit that dwells inside of her and that spirit tells people's fortunes. We don't know what that means. We don't know if that's a trick that he's doing, if he literally knows the future or the demon inside of her just knows something about people that is able to give the appearance of telling the future. But whatever it is, people are flocking to her and the owners are making money off of her and they want her to stay that way. But when this girl sees Paul and his team, the demon inside of her does what the demons did in Jesus' day. They can't keep their mouth shut and they speak some of the truest words in the Bible. This girl runs up to Paul and his team and verse 17 says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. I mean, Lydia couldn't have said it better herself. Oddly enough in our text, this goes on for several days until Paul gets so annoyed, he kind of turns around and snaps and casts out the demon. And I don't know what to make of that, and commentators don't know what to make of that, why he didn't do that on the first day, or why it says that he was annoyed and did it that way. But whether his heart was right or wrong in this, God's power supersedes Paul's motives, and he has something for this girl. God always wants our hearts involved in our obedience. He always wants obedience with a happy heart, but praise God, he can use our obedience all the same. The Lord loves a cheerful giver, but he's done a lot of work through grumpy givers giving money that he's still gonna use for his kingdom. God loves a cheerful exorcist, but he can use a grumpy exorcist if that's all he has to work with because God's power doesn't reside in us or even in our motives, but it dwells in God alone and God will use some funny people in some funny situations with some bad motives to do his glorious work. 
God has a plan for this girl, whether Paul had a plan for this girl or not. And God supersedes Paul, breaks into this moment, and frees this girl from spiritual and economic bondage in one powerful, beautiful move. When that happens, her owners are furious, of course, and they grab Paul and Silas, they drag them before the rulers, they make an accusation that I think is profound and very telling in verse 20. They say, these men are disturbing our city. Do you hear what they're saying there? They're saying there's two versions or two visions for our city, and we have one. We want the city as it is right now in which we can oppress and exploit and continue to do that for the sake of our wallets. That's our vision for the city. But if you let these men come with the message they're preaching, they have an entirely different message for the city and a vision for the city. And those two things can't possibly go together. Their gospel is messing with our city. If you keep letting them preach this, it's going to change the way we do things here in Philippi. Nobody cares about your religion if it is a private, domestic, house cat Christianity that lives indoors and never makes it past the threshold of your home. Nobody cares about that. The devil doesn't even care about that because you keep it indoors and it doesn't bother anybody. But if you start believing, living, preaching the gospel of Acts, which is the lion of Judah loose on the streets, well, now all of a sudden you are going to feel serious resistance from our city, from principalities, because this is a different animal. Does Columbia know this? Does our city feel the presence of of Jesus's church. There are people and principalities in this city who have a dark vision for the city, for its people, for its households as places to be used and abused and neglected and taken advantage of and exploited. But does our city yet know this corresponding antithetical vision of the kingdom that because Jesus has risen from the dead, he is coming to bring justice to the oppressor. He's coming to bring righteousness to the oppressed. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Throughout history, wherever the gospel goes, it turns cities upside down. Philippi is the first of a bunch that we will see. The gospel will bring justice. It will uplift the poor. It will protect the unborn. It will adopt the orphan. It will abolish slavery. It will reconcile the races. It will welcome the refugee. The Amy Carmichaels and the William Wilberforces and the Martin Luther King Juniors come by their callings honestly. The gospel is explosive. It changes everything. It changes me. It changes my household. It changes my neighborhood. The gospel changes everything. Now I want to close with just one observation here. As this gospel is changing everything, did you notice in our text 
that every explosive moment is born out of prayer. Did you see that? So verse 13, they sought a place of prayer, and then Lydia is converted. And in verse 16, they went to a place of prayer, and then a slave girl is liberated. And then verse 25, we'll see next week, as Paul and Silas are praying, an earthquake happens, which leads to a jailer's conversion. Do you think that's a coincidence? Nothing meaningful happens in Philippi without prayer. I had a pastor once ask, um, what would happen if God appeared to you in a vision and said, I'm going to answer every prayer you have prayed for yourself, for your household, for your city? Every prayer you pray, automatic yes. I mean, that would be fantastic. But here's the catch. It's only every prayer that you prayed last week. (laughs) You can't sneak in a new one today now that you know the deal. What have you prayed last week for yourself and for your household and for your city that God could do? It's like, uh uh-oh. Am I praying bold prayers of faith that God will move here and here and in my city to do his work? Prayer has strength because God has strength. It's not the prayerer, it's the one to whom we pray. Prayer has strength because God has strength and God's strength is most fully felt in his son as we see in this passage. Paul's gonna write back to the city in Europe this, that Jesus was crucified in weakness but now lives by the power of God. And so believe, as we appeal to this power in the name of Jesus, May this gospel bring change to myself and to my household and to this great city of Columbia. May he do his will and his work and be glorified for it. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Heavenly Father, come Lord Jesus, come. I pray that you would explode our tiny visions for this place and for ourselves and instead bring this kingdom vision that you long to turn this city upside down with the good and gracious news of the gospel and you will bring freedom to this place. I pray that you bring it. I pray that we feel it and celebrate it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.